1: This is Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
2: Hello. Wow, nice crowd. Don't he says think? that everywhere we go. By I the do. Way. Just
3: but I mean rousing. it this
2: time, actually. Yeah. Uh,
3: so uh, it's, it's lovely to be here in Hebden Bridge, thank you for having us, it's my first time in Hebden Bridge, but not yours, you think you came on holiday think... here in the 70s.
2: <laughs> he likes to remind me that I'm significantly older than him, three years. Uh, I think I came here because I was living in Leeds, and I think I, I, think I came here with my parents, but it's, it's a bit vague, Right. but it's a fantastic place, isn't it? Yeah, a really beautiful part of the world, and thank you for coming out uh, tonight. Well, let's, let's take... talk about what we're talking about. Yeah. So we're talking about Hebden Bridge because Hebden Bridge has been voted many times, as people who live here know, the, like, best town in Britain. Big whoop for Hebden Bridge. And the thing that caught our eye was earlier this year, there's a some slightly mad organisation called SAS, not the SAS and not the airline, who did a... Um, I'm going to get this wrong, but an AI algorithmic diddly do and, and <laughs> that's, uh, that's how they refer technically, to technically to use a technical term and they came up with Hebden Bridge being the best town to live in the UK yep. but more than that one of the top five places in the whole world yeah uh, I mean which is yeah. pretty impressive uh, I'll tell you who the other ones are um it goes West Perth Feyenoord uh I think that's like the football team New York Sandy Bay, and Hebden Bridge. Sandy Bay's in Australia. Was that in any particular order? That was in that order. Hebden Bridge, number one. Number five. Oh, okay. Uh, but still, Sorry. Look, number five in the world, they, they sampled 150,000 different locations. Yeah. And I think they sort of did it on the basis of people's tweets or something. I mean, it sounds like a complete load of bollocks. But anyway, uh, <laughs> but I mean, it's not a load of bollocks about Hebden Bridge. But anyway. Oh, it's uh, a very, very clever diddly-do. Uh, but I mean, it is a clever diddly-do. Anyway, so... We're going to be talking about town, about Hebden Bridge and why it's such a fantastic place to live with somebody called Beth Paramore who runs who runs the Chapter 17 restaurant just down the road. You all must go. We went earlier on. It's fantastic. But also we're delighted to have with us Lisa Nandy, Labour MP, MP for Wigan, who runs something called the Centre for Towns. And she's with us and she's come over uh, from Lancashire to Yorkshire to be with us tonight, which is really nice of her, uh, to talk about how we make towns successful, some of the issues facing towns. So we're using Hebden Bridge to talk about towns in general.
3: And then in addition to that, uh, we are going to be joined by Debs Gatenby, who is a fantastic comedian, and she's done a lot here in Hebden Bridge in the past, and she's going to be coming on to pitch some ideas to us
2: which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. And speaking of reasons to be cheerful, let's do ours. OK, so mine is that I'm at the MP for Doncaster North. I was at an event in Doncaster this morning... Uh, which was celebrating the work of something called the Dollywood Foundation, which is founded by Dolly Parton. It's also called the Imagination Library. And basically, it's an amazing scheme, and you've all got to go and tweet about it and do it wherever you live, which is it gives a book a month to nought-to-five-year-olds and obviously their families, and it has had incredible effect. It's, it's been done for five years in North Lincolnshire. It's been doing, done all around the world. It started in America, obviously. Uh, the, the sort of start-up is funded by uh, Dolly Parton's money and by her, um, and then councils and others take it over. And it's been going for two years in Doncaster. It's again had incredible effect. 60% of to 5 year olds in Doncaster are involved in it already. Uh, we're hoping to carry it on. I was speaking at their um, conference, which happens once every two years, and it was happening in Doncaster. So Uh, Calderdale, local councils, they should all be doing it because it's a really, really good scheme. And Ed was talking
3: about his favourite book when he was four years old, which is a picture book version of Das Kapital. Exactly.
2: (laughs) Honestly, it's out of print now, but it was really was really good. Uh, What's yours?
3: Uh, Mine is I, I caught the train to Leeds and my friend brought me... Is that a round of applause for Leeds?
2: And also it's a national... The
3: nationalised train. Yeah, I know, which I was very excited about until I went to the buffet car and found out they'd run out of sandwiches after ten minutes.
2: It so... happened after seven minutes with Virgin, so honestly it's sort <laughs> of it really
3: used... Oh here's, here's the thing, just very quickly. There was yeah. a man on the train with no shirt on. Do you think that's acceptable or unacceptable behaviour? Unacceptable. Oh, good. Yeah, it wasn't Dude. me. Um, was that your reason to be cheerful no no my reason to be cheerful is I then got into Leeds and I was walking through a shopping centre and our announcer Gail Lofthouse who does the jingles on the podcast um, she was doing her BBC Radio Leeds show live from the shopping centre it looked like a a little shed, a little greenhouse in the middle of the shopping centre so I got to go on and have a chat with her and while we were chatting a little old lady came banging on the window like this and I don't know what she wanted, I think maybe we were making too much (laughs) noise and she wanted us to turn it down. Really? Yeah. You didn't invite her on? No, no, I thought it could be uh, too much of a wild card. Yeah. But yeah, so I I got to appear on BBC Radio Leeds this afternoon. Very good. Ad hoc way. So those are our reasons to be cheerful.
2: Right. So, um, ladies and gentlemen, will you welcome Beth Paramore and Lisa Nandy to the stage? (laughs) So, Beth. Beth has hot-footed it from uh, Chapter 17... Uh, and it's going to be hot-footing it back, so we're incredibly grateful to you for coming.
4: Thank you. Um,
2: you've lived in Hebden Bridge since you were about seven, is that right?
4: Yeah, seven years old, yeah. Tell us
2: a little bit, and I think lots, it will resonate with lots of the audience, but also for the audience at home. Tell us a bit about why Hebden Bridge is the sort of best town in Britain, according to the diddly-doo algorithmic thing, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, the top five in the world.
4: There's, I think there's quite a few reasons that kind of all add up to make it this really special place to live. Um it's one of the most welcoming towns I've ever been in or lived in or anything and like everyone's welcome no matter you know anything everyone's welcome it's also beautiful which helps you know being nestled in the valley and everything definitely you've got the canal people who like walking and cycling You've got all the history you know with kind of Sylvia Plath being buried up in Heptonstall and everything Um, and then you've got so many independent businesses which I think is one of Hebden's strong points you haven't got barely any chains you've got the co-op and one stop. Jeff was
2: very disappointed there wasn't a Costa Coffee just
4: to grass him <laughs> up there's, one, there's a Costa Coffee machine in the co-op and it's caused a lot of drama. <laughs> a lot of drama. Um, but yeah, most of the shops you see when you're walking up and down the street are local businesses and you'll know the person who owns it from, you know, they'll be your parent's friend or your friend from school. So everyone kind of has an incentive to go out and support smaller businesses and, you know, spend the money locally and back into the local economy and everything. So I think that's one of the reasons that Hebden Bridge is such an important and little special little town. Um, yeah.
2: But it, it wasn't always like this, was it? Because it's a former mill town. Yeah. And it sort of developed this sort of artistic, LGBT-friendly, yeah. independent sort of vibe over time, didn't yeah, it? Yeah,
4: that's right, yeah. I mean, when I moved here, I think it was just becoming kind of the town that it is now. It, um, my mum always says that Todmorden—that's the town along—is kind of how Hebden Bridge was. Yeah, I live in Todmorden now as well. <laughs> um, Beth um, actually Heb-
2: lives in Todmorden. Yes, don't
4: you? I do, but I still love Hebden Bridge. <laughs> um, but yeah, Hebden Bridge is kind of how Todmorden is. Todmorden now is how Hebden Bridge was about 20 years ago. It's kind of there's a couple of little kind of nice, you know, cafes and restaurants and stuff. Um, but in the last 10, 10 years or so, I think Hebden Bridge has really shot off. Um, and it's, you know, with all, topping all these lists of the best places to live in. Which
2: is driving the world. up house prices and it's quite exactly, yeah. problematic.
4: <laughs> Which is why I moved to Tomenden. Yeah. You know. <laughs> and, but, and, so and just grim. one other
2: thing, because you were saying earlier that, it's also an incredible community spirit here that when the floods happened yeah. in 2015, it was an extraordinary...
4: Definitely, yeah. That was one of the moments I was most proud of being from Hebden Bridge, I think. The floods completely destroyed not just Hebden Bridge, but the other towns on the bottom of the valley as well. Um, but my partner, Jack, he used to be a chef at the Stubbing Wharf, which is a pub... Just down the road, and obviously it was Boxing Day, so all the cafes and restaurants had extra stock um, you know to kind of be ready for the christmas season and We all woke up on Boxing Day, and the heavens had opened, and everything all the river levels had shot through the roof, and everyone was panicking, and the stubbing, which was Jack's pub, had um completely flooded it had the the downside of being between the canal and the river, so it had kind of you know a bathtub effect there and um, so he couldn't go to work. But we all, everyone I knew was like, when are you going to Hebden to help? You know, we all kind of grabbed our shovels and our, you know, dustpan and brushes that wouldn't be any use at all. But, you know, we thought we'd bring them anyway. And um, we came into Hebden Bridge on the Boxing Day and the streets were packed. Like, the people who were, like, running the kind of actual clearing up were like, there's nothing really to do. <laughs> you know, there's too many people here. Um, we all went into the Picture House, which is another great thing about Hebden Bridge. One of the last council-run cinemas in the UK. Um it was just down the road. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Let's hear it for the picture house.
4: Um, but all, all their electricity had gone, so we all were wearing head torches and um, like scooping up this kind of river muck from the bottom of the cinema. But everyone was there and everyone was helping, and it kind of shows... And the fact that Hebden's recovered so well, I think, as well, in the last two years or so, shows what a great town we are and what a great community we have. Very special. <laughs>
3: And, and Lisa, you were quick to point out before we came on that Hebden Bridge is is not the typical town experience. It's about as atypical a town as we could have found.
5: Yeah, I mean, we, we, we set up the Centre for Towns um, a couple of years ago. After the Brexit referendum, we got really fed up with being told that our towns um, where we live, um, particularly those towns that voted to leave, were somehow wastelands that were left behind, where they had nothing going for them, and where people just, you know, couldn't have understood the... The answer to the question about whether to leave the EU or not and we thought hang on a minute these places, these are our homes they have loads going for them and there are a lot of people in them who've been trying to say something for a very long time so we set up Centre for Towns and we started producing huge amounts of data about Towns and I can confirm to you that Hebden Bridge is one of the least typical towns <laughs> in the UK so well done Ed and Jeff, for bringing but- us here to talk <laughs> about Towns but actually there's something in what Beth said that's really important about that is typical uh, about Hebden Bridge which is This, that it has its own unique identity, like many other towns in the UK. It has its own unique assets. And the thing that came through so strongly from what you were telling me and what I've known from, you know, spending lots of time here over the last few years with close friends of mine who are at the back. One of them, Josh, bouncing a baby, who's only a few weeks old. Is um, the community is incredible. Incredibly engaged and very strong. And that flood story really illustrates it. And also that this is a place that has a very strong sense of identity that it's been able to reflect in the high street, in the businesses, in the way it goes about its business. And that's something actually that towns across this country are crying out for because they know better than anybody else what the solutions are. Berry knows better than Whitehall what the solutions are for Berry and they know better than Manchester as well. And so Moving that power away from centralised decision-making and down to town level so that people can actually drive the decisions um, that affect their lives is absolutely essential. There's a reason why Take Back Control really caught the public mood in towns across Britain during the referendum. It wasn't because suddenly 52% of this country had become little Englanders. It's simply not true. You can see that in the collapse of UKIP ever since. But the truth is that Take Back Control really resonated with this sense of disempowerment, this sense that quite often national government is getting in the way of what towns want to see delivered in their own local areas. And that, that's the importance, I think, of the conversation that we're having here today. Because until relatively recently, I never heard this discussed at national level. I mean, I don't know about you, Ed, but I used to get off the train in Westminster on a Monday and feel like I was stepping into a completely different world from Wigan where my home is and feel like that again when I stepped off the train on a Wednesday night in Wigan. That cannot be right, that large swathes of this country just aren't represented in the national debate.
2: And you're completely right about that, the contrast between Doncaster and London is is the same. Talk to us about this divide or how would you describe not so much the divide but the difference between cities and towns? Because as you say, you know, one has to be really careful about this because... You know, sometimes it's portrayed like towns are just benighted places and cities are all doing incredibly well. And that's obviously not what you're saying. But how would you describe the sort of difference before we get on to some of the solutions?
5: Well, I'll just give you a personal example. I was born in Manchester in 1979. And um, Manchester at the time was younger than most of the, uh, older, sorry, than most of the surrounding Towns, because of the industry that existed in that area. It's very similar in this part of the world as well. If you look at Leeds, it's a similar story. And over the last 40 years, what we've seen is a process where more and more jobs and opportunities have been concentrated in cities, where cities have got younger and younger, But as a consequence, towns have aged as those jobs and opportunities have been lost. And you see the net effects in towns across the country, because what it's meant is, as towns, many towns, have lost their working age population, we've seen them hollowed out. We've seen the effects on the high street with the loss of stores like Marks and Spencer's and House of Fraser in recent weeks that have been in the headlines. We've seen it in the loss of community banking facilities, which just simply can't be sustained if you don't have a working age population. We've seen it with the loss of bus routes, which are the arteries of local economies, and also connect us to one another. And we've seen it, most of all, with the loss of community institutions. So things like libraries, community pubs that can't be sustained anymore. And there's a real problem here. This is where I think the anger comes from, because the Tory MP, Jesse Norman, said a few years ago that these institutions, these pubs, these libraries help to shape and define us as we help to shape and define them. This isn't just about economics. This is about the very fabric of people's lives disappearing before their eyes over recent decades, and it's that that accounts for the anger that's expressed towards people like us, actually, and, you know, towards politicians who just don't seem to understand and get it and at worst are actually actively making decisions that are destroying that.
2: Cities are younger, more cosmopolitan, uh, if you look at the number of uh, sort of ethnic minorities in cities, much higher than in than in towns. Is there any other things that mark out towns as compared to cities?
5: Well, our co-founder at the Centre for Towns, the academic Will Jennings, wrote a paper about this called Two Englands, that he argues, rightly in my view, was exposed by Brexit. And Brexit was the symptom and not the cause of this divide. And what he found really was that you've got two groups of people whose lived experiences over recent decades has been very, very different. People in cities tend to feel very optimistic about the future. People in towns tend to feel very pessimistic and that's replicated in the view of politics as well. There's a huge divide um, between the social liberals that tend to exist in cities and the social conservatives that tend to exist in towns. And this is a problem for the country, because obviously if you've got two groups of people living very polarised lives, only a few miles apart from one another, then we've got a problem. But it's also rightly, I think, now becoming a problem for politicians, because the truth is that the next election isn't going to be won or lost in Manchester or London, it's going to be won or lost in places like Bolton, in places like Nuneaton, actually in places like this. And that has prompted a renewed focus on towns, perhaps for the first time in my lifetime, that I think is really refreshing. Whoever... Understands and speaks to the frustration in towns is going to win probably not just the next election but the one after that and, and, and that's got to be a positive thing for people. And, who and live just to in be there.
2: clear about this, you're not saying cities don't have massive amounts of deprivation, are you? I mean, you're not saying cities are all kind of great islands of prosperity and towns are all deprived. I mean, it's much more complicated than that. It, it's,
5: it's, a, it's a totally different picture. You have huge pockets of deprivation within the cities that people are grappling with, often alongside huge amounts of wealth as well, and that creates its own social problems. But what you see in towns is whole communities who've watched their areas become hollowed out. You see it most strikingly with young people. When I talk to young people in uh, my area and in the towns on the outskirts of Greater Manchester, those who <laughs> could leave, have gone off to university and then they've gone on to find jobs elsewhere, usually in Manchester or in London or in other major cities. And those who couldn't, who didn't have the skills or the opportunities to do that, have been left really at the sharp end of the low-pay crisis. The jobs that are left, that used to be the coal mines, but now it's the call centres. And the truth is nobody's really got to grips with that yet. They've not got to grips with the fact that there are whole communities who look at the future and don't see much hope. For the future. And that's why, you know, being in Hebden Bridge is a really good place to have this conversation because actually a town that has booked that trend a town that's drawn on its strengths and its local assets is a really really positive example that can give you some hope that things can get better for other people
3: and can we talk about some of the solutions because when when i hear you talking about institutions like the library or the pub or the high street and i think about the way that modern life is changing be it uh, people online so much more of the time cheap booze in the supermarket meaning people don't go to Pubs so much, out of town shopping centres. Like, what are the solutions for things like that? If 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 it is that sense of community and place and being with each other that gels a town together, if how how you can't turn back the clock in a certain sense. What are the sort of forward looking solutions?
5: So you've got to you've got to get the spending power back into many of the towns around the country, particularly post industrial towns, seaside towns, areas where those primary industries have been lost. And there are lots of examples around the country of where they're doing this really successfully. So over in Bury, Rishi Shorey, a really forward-looking, dynamic council leader, has started exploring using the power of energy, for example, to start rebuilding those municipal assets. They're doing the same thing actually in the northeast of Scotland, where they've lost huge amounts of jobs in the North Sea, but they're starting to diversify and use the skills that they've got to build wind technology, not just build it, but actually to make themselves a research hub to to drive those clean jobs in the future. Paisley is another example where they use their culture bid in order to kick-start regeneration and they're now rebuilding the high street off the back of it. But the point is this, that there is no one-size-fits-all. Actually, if you look at Doncaster, you look at Wigan, you look at Hebden Bridge, the skills, the aspirations, the strengths, the history, the identity is very, very different. And the difficulty at the moment, the thing that's common to all of these areas, is that most of these decisions are made hundreds of miles away by people who don't understand the cost of them. I mean, there was a cheer that went up in the audience tonight because when when you said, Jeff, that you got the train over from Leeds, somebody shouted, hooray, you managed to get a train. (laughs) I mean, the fact that our timetabling issues have been caused by a group of people who never use these services, who don't know the local um, issues around it, just tells you everything you need to know about how remote power is in this country.
2: And I mean, ju- just on your point about sort of keeping money in areas, I mean, the other example that comes to mind um, is what's happening in Preston, which we did a whole uh, episode on, because you know there, Matthew Brown, who's now the council leader you know, has got the so-called anchor institutions so the local public institutions to start spending money locally, created co-ops locally, Think about a Preston bank. I think it shows the way that if you have creative local leadership and you have the power... You can start to make things happen locally, which is kind of your point, isn't
5: it? Yeah, but I think this is the key thing: is if you have the power. So the first group that came to see us when we set up Centre for Towns was the CBI, and it's a bit of a surprise for a Labour politician. I mean, I'm not saying anything about our relationship sure. with business in recent sure. years and whose fault that might be. Sure. But, um,
3: <laughs> sure, but
5: but the CBI came to see us and they said, "Look, we're really interested in this because we think that cities." Um, you know there's still growth potential in cities but as IPPR North has found these are reaching their limits and towns are actually a really key area for us to expand into there are lots of reasons why we want to invest but the truth is that we can't do it because the infrastructure isn't there so it's transport It's skills, it's broadband, all of the things, actually, that local leaders, regional leaders, like Matthew Brown, are screaming at government to let them have control over. Because the truth is, to be honest, in the north, if we'd been able to make decisions about how our money was invested in our public transport, we'd never have started with High Speed 2. We would have connected up our towns and our cities across the north of England, and... We would have invested in buses. We never ever talk no, about buses in right. Westminster, but we've lost eight percent of our bus network. So we've got
2: much bigger a issue. I mean on Despite, the, despite the point but about trains but we don't
5: talk about why. So, yeah,
2: sorry, I, mean, I was going to say. I mean, trains are really important, and uh, and the the whole Northern Rail thing is a complete fiasco. But it is true that if I think about my constituents and probably your constituents, they're much more likely to use buses than they are to use trains.
5: Absolutely right. I mean, there are just. There aren't train stations in large squares of the country. So, you know, before I came here, we were talking, I was talking to a friend about Elland, where I think the council is trying to use um, uh, the establishment of a train station to try to connect, to to kickstart regeneration there, which is a really fascinating example because because many of our towns are brilliantly located for the economy, but actually that's an asset that has been completely underutilised because national policy Frankly, national policymakers live in cities, and so they're completely blind to what's happening outside. They're likely to be on the trains, which is why we talk about them, but they're not likely to be on the buses.
2: Just talk about one other aspect of this which intrigues me, which is there's this I, um, phrase called the foundational economy, which sounds like a sort of slightly kind of technical phrase... It's what Rachel Reeves calls the everyday economy. And the the basic point about this is we focus a lot or or national government focuses a lot on shiny high-tech jobs and all of that. But they don't focus on the jobs that like 85% or 90% of people do, particularly in towns, around services in social care, supermarkets, working for the local council and all that. And that's kind of an important part of your argument, isn't it? I
5: think it's, I think it's really essential, actually, that we talk a lot about the jobs that there will be in the future and we talk about the jobs that there were in the past. But we don't very seldom do we actually talk about the jobs that people are doing now but i would caution a bit too against this sort of idea that what we should do is just take what is and make it slightly better i mean i'll just give you one very quick example the importance of arts and culture to communities across this country i think has been completely overlooked and misunderstood in recent years and my colleague john mann did a piece of work recently where he found that The Arts Council spends £8 in Islington for every £1 that they spend across all the former coalfield communities across Britain. And this is really problematic. Why? One, because it's about the economy, because actually in those creative industries we ought to have the opportunity to create those jobs. We've seen the stunning success of Media City being moved up to Salford, and many people in Hebden Bridge actually work there on a daily basis and have benefited from that. But also because this is our arts and culture, and we ought to see are local and regional identities reflected in the national conversation?
2: Definitely. Where do you want to take this work next?
5: Um, Well, we think there's a moment, really, where suddenly national politics is looking at towns for the first time. And um, where we want to take it, I suppose, is to a country that has much more power, that feels much more empowered and self-confident, that where people are able to drive decisions um, that affect their lives rather than having them handed to them. And, you know, some people have said to us, is this an anti-cities agenda? It absolutely isn't. You know, there are, there are, like we started by saying, there are huge pockets of deprivation in cities yeah. that need to be dealt with and addressed. And actually, you know, this, we've got these amazing cities in Britain that have huge amounts going for them as well. But the truth is that if you have an economic model that only looks at city growth as the engine of growth then those trickle down effects just aren't felt by surrounding areas, we've learnt that over the last 30 years, people have been trying to tell us for a very long time and we've got to start listening and it becomes an issue for the whole country because if you try to concentrate your economy in particular geographical areas and you don't look at the skills and the assets of the whole country then you find that you can't succeed that's been the story of the last 20 years in Britain and we think it's a moment where this could potentially change
2: Audience, who people from Hebden Bridge. I want you to tell us why you think Hebden Bridge is so successful. I want you to add to what Beth said. Yeah, there's a lady there um, at the back, and you'll just say your name. and uh...
1: Hello, my name's Jilly Briley. I'm the director of a local charity called the Creative Learning Guild. We're a charity that supports and promotes creativity within education.
2: Fantastic. We certainly need that. More of that.
1: I was really struck as you were speaking about. I heard the word creative come up a lot I heard about culture in terms of regeneration and was really struck how central culture and creativity is to Hebden Bridge it's an incredibly creative place to live and work and and you absolutely see that in terms of the the events that are on for local communities we have so many different types of arts festivals here it's it's just incredible and um, and so I guess linking into those ideas of culture and creativity and the role that they might have to play in the regeneration of towns and seeing at the same time that art subjects are being absolutely decimated in Completely schools. Completely
2: right.
1: How are we going to... Thank you. How, how do we, under this current government agenda, continue to inspire and skill up young people to be the creative entrepreneurs that we need for the future.
2: I feel the the ghost of Michael Gove, well not the ghost, but the shadow <laughs> of Michael Gove floating above this conversation. Uh, I mean, we did a whole episode on this because, you know... I mean, it seems absolutely crazy, as you say, given how important creativity is to the future of the country and how good we are at many of these creative subjects that it is being decimated in our schools. I mean, Lisa, do you want to say something?
5: I used to work with children and young people before I got elected to Parliament, and what I saw over time was that... It's quite a controversial thing to say, I suppose, because it happened under my party in government and continued under the Conservatives, but I saw a process, really, of the power to actually determine what you're teaching to the children in front of you being stripped away from people at the front line and the workforce and as a consequence you know if you if you have a secretary of state who who sees value only in what he calls the so-called core traditional subjects, but doesn't understand that you might have a child in your class for whom music technology is the route into getting maths GCSE, then that child is never going to succeed. So I'd like to see the power pushed right back down to the classroom level. Strong accountability, yes, of course. It's right that we should account for what we're doing and be transparent about what we're doing in the classroom, but, but autonomy to be able to actually look at best interests and what do they need.
2: Good. Other, other, other questions? Um, yep.
5: We What's all... your name? Sorry. Polly. Hi. Hi. Uh, we're all sort of aware that our small town can do really good stuff because we've all done it, but how do we get that across nationally? How do we persuade our current government to accept that as well, that there are people around the country that know what they're doing and that can really
6: change things?
2: Let, let's take another couple and then we'll, we'll answer them in a group. I think there's two... two, two... Gents at the back. I
6: think one of the things... What's that, your name, sorry?
2: Uh, Paul. Hi.
6: Uh, I think one of the things... Are you from Hebden? Hebden or? I am. I, I cho- I've, I've come here. I, cho- I chose to live in this town. I think one of the... There's a sort of guilty secret in Hebden. There's a real tension in the town, and you see it on the web, on Hebweb and local websites, between those of who have chosen to come here and slightly un- unsettle the economic apple cart because we, we tend to commute out of town to reasonably good jobs. I think in the town there's a tension between those people who live here who feel left behind. And I think that's true of many towns across across the country. And what I'm concerned about most of all, and I'd be interested in what Lisa said one of the big issues I think is how do we give people meaningful jobs with meaningful wages and, and tackle the curse in this particular town of social housing. People can't afford to live here. Beth runs a business and she can't even afford to live in our town. We have to be honest, there's a generation being left behind and it's still being left behind on both the opposition and the government benches by a metropolitan bias against small towns like this. So I'd be very interested, Lisa, what's your foundation going to do about low-income jobs and giving people meaningful jobs for the
2: future? Okay, that's really good. And then the gentleman next to you? And then we'll, we'll come back to Beth and to Lisa.
7: Hi, uh, I'm Josh. Um, the, um... Is
2: that your friend? Ah, Go on, cool. make um, it a hard question
7: for
5: Lisa,
7: I was going to say, it depends what he says. He was yeah. my friend. I think uh, we talked briefly about transport today, and one of the kind of big issues that we have is the fact that all the transport goes to London. But actually, there's also a problem that, around here, all the transport goes to Leeds and Manchester. And we now live in a world where we've got, you know, super-fast broadband, particularly in to Bridge, and that's another reason our is doing better than surrounding towns. What can we do in the kind of modern economy to make, uh, more towns be able to actually, pe- more people be able to actually do stuff in the town that they're in? Do those jobs that are, you know, kind of the, the slightly more interesting or kind of the better paid jobs in the town that they're in, as opposed to making everyone go off to Leeds, making everyone go to Manchester, making everyone go to Bradford. And that would, you know, it'd have a big impact on climate change, it'd have a big impact on, um, on kind of people's happiness in the town and it mean that cities you know th- th- there's a downside for cities as well because more people are moving in cities cities are getting more expensive and uh, frankly they're becoming less pleasant places okay. to live
2: good question so we've got how do we persuade the government um how do we stop people like beth being priced out and how do we ensure that people can live in towns um and do work there beth
4: I just wanted to say that I think it's obviously important to have kind of those interesting jobs in smaller towns as well but there's also the jobs that have to be done that people still want to do that maybe aren't interesting jobs that are technically uh, traditionally like low paid jobs such as hospitality and um, the service industry and stuff like that Um, and people still want to do those jobs even if they aren't particularly meaningful jobs or, you know. So I think, for example, Jeremy Corbyn's policy of having a £10 living wage um, for everybody, um, which I think is incredibly important, and that's from a small business owner. I think, obviously, there'd have to be some kind of help implementing it initially for small businesses because otherwise they'd all go under. Um, But that is incredibly important because some people are happy, you know, like me, I'm happy working in hospitality, but it doesn't pay particularly well and people aren't happy to pay... Increased prices to boost up the wages, but if we had a kind of a government that were overseeing that, and you know it was policy and it was you know the law to be paying everybody this wage, then I think that would really help bring money back into small towns as well.
2: Good, good. Uh, Lisa, do you want to come in either on Josh's question about people sort of living and staying in towns, or the lady's question about sort of persuading the government?
5: Sure. I mean, I, I completely agree with Josh, and I think there's a human side to this too. That ever since we started this people have been approaching us at the end of events and saying I'm the young person you describe who moved away for university or for work you know I've got a great job I really I really appreciate the opportunity that I've had but there was one guy who said to us a few months ago the my story of the last 20 years has been the search to go home I've had children my mum's getting older I want to be closer to home and actually there are families whose lives have been ripped apart by this blindness that we've got to what's going on in large swathes of the country that needs to be addressed how do you address it? well I think this is really difficult. You said, what's the foundation going to do? I should point out that the Centre for Towns, which we set up last year, is currently being run out of Ian's shed in Bolton and it's not a David Cameron style shed, it is an actual shed that he put up himself so you can make of that what you will. Um, But we, we keep having this conversation about redevelopment because one of the big debates, you'll have had it here, I know you've had it here, but you've, they've had it in Halifax as well recently, is about gentrification and whether that actually yeah. ends up pushing people out, or whether it ends up being inclusive or not. In the end, I think the answer to this is that you have to trust people locally to know what's best for their own local areas, and my experience is that when you hand people knowledge and decision-making powers, you empower them to make a proper decision, they'll sit down, they'll thrash it out, and they will come to the right conclusion about what's best for everybody in their local areas. In Greater Manchester, for example, you know we're looking after our homeless because it matters. In Newcastle, the City Council decided when the Education Maintenance Allowance was abolished by central government, well, this matters so much to our kids that we're just going to do it ourselves. And I suppose, in the end, that's the answer to your question as well about... Um, how do we persuade government, how do we persuade people that we in towns can do this for ourselves the truth is that you know, my party, Labour, we might not have been in power nationally for 8 years but we are in power in almost every major town and city around this country and we have councillors in almost every community and we can show the difference that we make when we get together with the local community, hand the powers that we have to that community and help us to make better decisions
2: I mean I, I also think just one thing I would add is that I think one of the tragedies of England and I say England advisedly is that the whole debate about devolution is like in its infancy and you know sometimes this debate is portrayed as sort of George Osborne, he's in favour of devolution and like there are lots of lay people in favour of devolution. This has got to become a more sophisticated debate. What Lisa said earlier about trickle down, you know, it, it's not a good national policy, you know, the idea that they, we just help the richest and then the wealth trickle down it's not a good local policy either. And in a way, I think that's what we're seeing developing. Let's go back to the audience.
1: Um,
5: I'm Taylor, and I'd just like to add on the subject of community. Pretty much
1: everybody in Hebden knows who like the Sesh Club 7 are and people like that. And they're like a group of teenagers who run around graffitiing everything. And I'd just like to ask on the subject of community, how do you think we start opening up?
5: um our community to teenagers and adolescents rather than just adults and young children there's less in hebden that appeals to these young people
2: i mean it's a really good question about hebden and a really good question i think more generally about towns actually because i see that in doncaster
4: one of the really good things that i think it was the local council did in hebden bridge was um the skate park in hebden bridge and that didn't used to be there i don't know if you saw it did either of you get the train if you walk through the park, you'll have seen there's a big skate park oh, yeah. there. Um, and that, when that was introduced, I must have been about 15, 14 maybe. Um, and that was a huge thing. And we used to have this fair that was run every summer called Fair for Youth, which was um, young people were involved in kind of setting it up and um, running it. And there was loads of kind of acts on and stuff like that, um, which is sadly not run anymore. Um, but I think things like that where you put the kind of organization um, and the, you know, the responsibility for organizing events into the hands of young people. It's not just kind of, you know, boring little things you're giving to young people to do or, you know, it's something that's actually going to create something and make something. There's a, another group um, that's just started up in Hebden Bridge called the Nova Collective, um, which is encouraging kind of young people to kind of get involved in arts and um, culture and everything, which I think is one of the most important things for young people in the, in the valley. I don't know if you know, but there's a, quite a big mental health crisis in Hebden, well, not just in Hebden Bridge, in the Calder Valley, especially around young men. Um, and getting people involved and in expressing themselves through arts and culture can be one of the things that helps people through those kind of, times in their life when they're you know the lowest um so kind of initiatives like that that get people involved in the arts and everything i think are incredibly important especially in small towns
2: very good
3: we uh we have a thing on the podcast it's called the jeffocracy and it's a utopian (laughs) society i am a very benign dictator um and and there's a lot of delegation involved so if, if I made you Minister for towns, this is to both of you sort of um, day one, first morning, what's the first thing that you do? I, I give you complete free reign carte blanche.
5: For me this isn't about redistributing power this is about restoring power back to people who rightfully own it. I think this is really what accounts for the level of frustration in many of our towns that we saw through brexit and we've seen actually for many years before that. If I was Minister for Towns, the first thing that I would do is set up a programme to be able to give power back to people in local areas to make decisions about the things that determine their lives.
2: What are the most important powers that they don't... If you take Wigan, for example, what's the power you think the council just really doesn't have the levers? Is it tax-raising? Is it... You know, powers over buses and transport, is it? What would you sort of pinpoint? It's
5: it's all of those things. It's proper skills strategy as well. It's also, you've got to think really radically about this. You know, we've got a real problem with the way that we treat immigration and the immigration debate in this country. And if you come to an area like mine in Wigan, where the far right has consistently tried to get a foothold, where we've seen people voting for the BNP before, where we've seen UKIP surge in the mid 2000s. Um, We had an example recently of where Serco, the big company that's contracted by the Home Office to house asylum seekers, took up a hotel on the outskirts of my constituency in a small village and overnight put hundreds of young men from Africa into this village without any warning to the local community. The far right targeted us. We had people with swastika banners outside and horrendous things being put online. And I got a lot of concerns from the local community. But actually, the council had a power of veto over that, they discovered. And so what we did was we went down. I went down with the local police. We called a public meeting, and we explained to people why those asylum seekers were there. And we started to talk to them. We forced Serco. The Home Office weren't very interested, but we forced Circo to come and answer questions about how long people would be there, how they were being cared for, what support was in place... What happened next really, really surprised me. Instead of saying to the council, we want you to use your power of veto, we started to see people turning up offering to volunteer and to support the local community. We had ministers doing sermons in the local churches. We had people making donations. And so we launched an appeal and we got 36,000 bags of donations for those refugees in two weeks. Now, this tells me that if you empower people to make decisions about what's happening in their areas, then they are decent and good-natured, and community-minded, and they make the right decisions. So we've got to think radically about what sort of power we hand to people.
7: Well said.
4: The, the biggest thing that would help small towns... I mean, I guess people in general across the country is things either like a living wage or universal basic income, I think, is a really interesting idea. Um, if people had, they knew that they had an income coming in every month it would give them the kind of freedom to explore other things that they're interested in, maybe set up a business, maybe, you know, and that, those kind of small businesses are what make small town. I know I'm biased because I run a small business, but small businesses are what make kind of towns thrive, I think, and, you know, people spend it back into the local economy and everything. So I think things like that would be really important.
2: Do they get the job? Yeah. yeah. It's a job share. It's a job share. Yeah. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, can we thank Beth Paramore and Lisa Nandy for brilliant discussion?
8: Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about That's O-S-E-A, Malibu.com, code GLOW.
3: Will you please welcome to the stage to pitch some ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, it's Deb Gatenby!
2: Yeah. I think it's okay to
8: have
3: a hug. Do you, do you, On the uh, scale of one to 10, how comfortable were those hugs, do you think?
8: Um, a two. A two, yeah,
3: two. I mean, it certainly looked. Two's not good, oh, I don't think. think.
8: I th- it was, I was a good two.
3: Dev, you described two. Hebden Bridge as your spiritual home before to me.
8: Yes. Um. I think, oh, I've done some really terrible gigs on this stage, too. <laughs> well, not terrible, but I've really exposed myself. Not like, you know, not like that, but like emotionally. Yeah. Um, I've exposed myself emotionally and. I think when I had a nervous breakdown many years ago, I did my best gig of my life on this stage, and it was and it was because it was such a it's such a lesbian-friendly town for me, and it's that's why I think there's a spiritual. It's always and the acceptance is out of this world, and it's I love it for that. I love it for embracing and that everybody is absolutely welcome here, and I,
3: I just love it. Uh, so, Debs, you've you've brought along some ideas. Oh, which yes. Which potential nights. ways to improve the country, improve yes. the world. Yes. What's your first one? My first
8: one is quite radical and out there. It's bring back national service.
7: Mm-hmm. But
8: what I mean by that, where you have to do a year working in either retail or catering. <laughs> because I've been at the coalface of catering. The coalface of retail, and it's a very difficult place to be. I can't say I'm working for right now because, you know. But I work on, you know those tills that where you don't, there's nobody there? They're called Scott tills. You might learn something tonight. And the Scott till is a place where people come and emotionally dump on you everything that's gone wrong in their life, quite possibly up to that point. And they like, excuse me! There's a lot of, excuse me! There's attitude, and I go, yeah, press that button. You don't just stop being a human being because you work in these places. I know I'm trying to make fun of it. When you're on that front line day in, day in, day out, it actually becomes apparent that we've lost something. We've lost respect for each other. It's, it's, it's really changed strange. As, as
3: things become more... So as people use automated tills yes. more, as people shop online more, they're less yeah. accustomed to dealing with... Are you a friendly boots. shopper, Jeff. I'm so needy to be liked you could not meet a friendlier shopper than, oh. than I am. But, I'm but, very but, warm. Because you want the person to like you. Exactly, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And do you find they do? I, no, I mean, this is my
2: great problem in life. <laughs> but, yes.
8: but you get better service.
2: That's a good point. So, Jeff, you're on for national service.
8: Mm. Yeah. You can choose, like, the catering is army and the navy is retail. So, you get different skills. <laughs> and we can maybe specialize and be SAS. I that might be working in some sort of concession at a festival. <laughs> That's like. Because that's where there's nowhere to hide. Special you, forces. Yeah, you might work on an artisan grilled cheese <laughs> store for like 14 hours at Glastonbury and you're going to get your SAS level.
2: Okay. I think it's good. So definitely having that
8: one. Definitely, you're definitely. having it.
2: Yeah.
8: Yes. yes. My second one, oh, oh, is about workplace again. I'm really into workplace. And I would like an enforced lunch hour uh, where it's playtime. And every yeah it's playtime, and every office block or big company has a play area it can be outside it's actually it be nice and the managers have to serve you lunch like they're the dinner ladies <laughs> and you go to the canteen area i ask with them and you go oh they're called i they don't want them and your managers have to serve you and then outside they have to hold the skipping ropes and everyone skips, and we play British Bulldog, bringing it back. Um, and so it would be quite roughy, tufty, but you have to get involved, and it's a whole hour. The whole company closes down, the phones are switched off. What's going to happen? Nothing!
2: None. Jeff is looking faintly horrified at this prospect.
3: I always enjoyed indoor playtime. Yeah, when it was oh. raining and you just got to look at books.
8: Yeah.
3: Oh. <laughs> Ed, have you ever played British Bulldog? No. Oh, Shall love we it? have a game now? Yes!
1: <laughs>
8: Side, in the car park. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. It's just great fun.
3: Yeah. I mean, I feel like in a way you're describing some of the modern Silicon Valley tax avoiding uh, companies, like because they're, they're yes. big on play, but they often use it as a way to get people oh, to stay to do and more leave. To do Never more leave. Never leave. Yeah, never leave. There's been studies done which say that the amount of hours you work and uh, doesn't necessarily mean more productivity, and we work more hours than lots of other countries in Europe, totally. and our productivity isn't the same so more play
8: more play more play people say they're gonna do it but they don't really do it you know you can see through things and i would just like to rip that all up and go it is actual play we're not talking about work my other idea is talking is work again but i would like all call centers to be run by the over 80s
3: I mean, this could end up with us being on the phone to call for considerably longer. Yes,
8: but it will teach you some great things about life and about learning to be patient. It's about learning how we can bridge the gap between our elders and the, the youth and the technology. But they might be more understanding and we might learn to value them better. Because I'd love to hear it. If, you, if my mum was working the call centre... I hope she's not listening. Oh, But anyway, she'd be amazing, obviously. But she'd, she'd pick up the phone and, and she'd go, Oh, just going to the toilet. <laughs> no, she'd She'd go to the toilet. And, and she'd done it to me. She... <laughs> um, once I had to drive all the way to York to put the phone down from Manchester. <laughs> mum! The so there's a lot of distraction, but I think it could be funny if you phoned up. Jean! Jean, there's a call for you. Jean. I'll just get Jean. She does electricity. It's the electricity. I just want us to not lose that connection with the people who... You know, once they've gone, they've gone. All their stories and their passion and their knowledge. You know, I'd like to be in this call centre where I'd like to work there as well. We're just chatting, we're having biscuits, we're having tea, we're talking, we're supporting each other, we're hearing stories, and then occasionally we answer the phone.
2: So do I do I detect from your ideas that empathy and the lack of empathy is a bit? you b you're you're big on that? Yes. You feel we're pretty unempathetic?
8: We're very angry. I've seen so many angry things just today. Yeah. And it would just, we jump to anger and judging people rather than they're having a bad day. I had a man in, in, a, in a workplace the other day who came in and he went to the self-service tools and he was, God, they never work and he threw all his shopping everywhere. And I just went, it's going to be all right. <laughs> and he looks at me like, it isn't. I went, no, it is. It's just some shopping. And I kicked something just to show that I was with him. <laughs> I said, oh, there's pretty fish fingers. And then he went out looking really confused because i would given him love rather than oh you No 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 no. I just went oh my god he's in pain he's in a very dark place and that button where it says do you want a carry bag for five p yeah, tipped I find, him. I find like that really poof.
2: confusing actually. Yeah, it's a bit where it says place your item in the carry bag, yeah, bag area. The bagging area it never have, works. Yeah, that is the If a
8: woman had designed it, as I say to many of my older lady customers. This would be so much bigger. We'd be able to lie down and somebody else would do it for us, which would defeat the whole object. But it would be bigger and there wouldn't be so many buttons. I see people standing there going, and I come over and go, it's that one. But, you know, um, I would like empathy and I want older people. I want us to be more connected and not so pushed out on the periphery. Well,
3: while we've got you here, um, for, for our listeners, what are you up to at the moment? Can they come and see you in anything? Are you touring?
8: I am trying to do something that's quite hard. I did a show about happiness and I took a year off to find happiness. And I know it's a bit of a cliche and Julia Roberts, blah, blah, blah. But I did it my way and I didn't do very much. And I just sat on the sofa reading books about happiness. got really miserable, um, which it didn't work. And so what I'm doing is trying to make this into something for the small screen.
3: And what did you learn about happiness?
8: Um, I learned that it was um, overrated. (laughs) Sometimes it's just in a nap or it's a moment, but I've given up searching for some big thing because I think it's in the, all the tiny moments that build up to actually sitting right here with you two. How do these things? Where do things come from? So I'm, I'm interested in all the moments that lead up to somewhere where we are right now. That's happiness to me.
3: Lovely.
8: Thank you. That's great to me. Thank you so much. Thank you.
2: I come away from Hebden Bridge thinking it's a fantastic place, don't you? Absolutely,
3: yeah. It's been
2: wonderful. With a a, a lovely audience. Give yourself a big round of applause, audience. Uh, I would like to thank uh, Beth Paramore, who has gone back to Chapter 17 to carry on uh, serving people. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Lisa Nandy for doing a great job. Uh, Thanks to Des Gatenby, who was wonderful. And
3: Emma Caution produced our podcast with backup and research from Alex weiss and Lindsay Todd. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our identity. Ed Seed composed the music. The
2: artwork was provided by... Emily Power, and that's... she the t shirts as well. Yeah. Ed really likes saying Emily Power's name. I do, I do. Emily Power. Yeah. Um, and, and that's it. We're done. Yeah. So. Uh, I think... I think one thing we should do, I mean, what makes Hebden Bridge is festivals like this and the people here, but I think we should thank the Hebden Bridge Arts Festival for having invited us and for putting on a great yeah, show. it been very well looked after.
3: So he's been Ed Miliband. And he's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been.
2: Reasons to be cheerful. Thank yeah. you very much.